0: Thank you, guys. That was awesome. It is great to be with you. I'm Joe Collins, and welcome to Shoreline Church. Our mission is to love and live like Jesus. My goal as a minister is to help Christ be formed into you. Another way of saying that is uh, my mission is to help you fulfill your mission. Last week, we started back up our series in the Gospel of Mark entitled Jesus Worth Following and we we talked about putting God first. Today I want to talk about that things aren't always as they seem. So a homeless person goes into a pub to get something to eat. He sits down at the bar And, of course, the bartender sees right away that he's homeless, he has no money, and he says, hey, listen, you can't be in here. It's for paying customers only. You're going to have to step out. You can't just sit here. You're disrupting the the other patrons. And the homeless person says, well, listen, I, I appreciate that. I'm really hungry. How about if I show you something that you've never seen before? Would you give me some lunch on the house? So the bartender thinks about it for a minute. He says, sure, let me... Let me help you out. So what do you got? Well, the guy reaches into his pocket. and He takes out a hamster (laughs) and he puts it on the bar and the hamster runs down the length of the bar, jumps off the edge and lands on the piano and starts playing show tunes on the piano. And he's good. (laughs) Bartender says, man, that's something I've never seen before. That's, that's really great. Lunch is on me. What do you have? So he orders And, you know, he eats his lunch, and about an hour later, he's still kind of hungry. So he calls the barkeep over, and he says, listen, I'm still hungry. I'd like to get some dessert. And the guy says, well, you know, the deal. you got to show me something or give me some money, but you can't just sit here. So the guy goes, okay. He reaches into his other pocket, and he pulls out a frog. (laughs) And he puts the frog on the bar. And the frog starts singing the show tunes that the hamster's playing. And the frog is amazing. Right about then, another customer sees what's going on and he runs over. He opens up his wallet, he takes all his money out and he says, I've got $300. I'll give it to you right now for that frog. And he pops it down on the on the, on the the bar and, and the, go, the homeless guy says, oh, sure, go ahead. He grabs the frog and he runs out screaming happy. But well, the bartender looks at the homeless person and he says, what, what are you doing? You just sold a singing frog. For $300, that thing's got to be worth millions. And the man says, no, not really. The hamster's actually a ventriloquist. <laughs> See, sometimes things aren't always as they seem. I think as we look at the scriptures today, we're going to find out that Jesus can surprise us from time to time. He isn't always as he seems. Let's pray before we read God's word. Father, Thank you so much for bringing us together today and this evening, and it's so joyful to be here with the Shoreline Church. I love being a part of this fellowship down here and being around my brothers and sisters in here. Uh, They're so encouraging. I love the spirit. I love the singing. I pray, God, that you open up our hearts now and help us to look into your word deeply and be moved by it, to be surprised by it, to see something we've never seen before. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Mark chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 32. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. If you can see on the screen, we have our text and we have our map, and that's a map of Palestine in the time of Jesus. And the red arrow is approximately where he is right about now in our story. If you remember from last week, Jesus had spent almost two and a half years now zigzagging all over that map, pretty much in the north part of the map, above the red arrow, and he was preaching repentance and practicing grace and getting the word out about the kingdom of God, and during that time, he became quite well-known. He became famous. He even at one point had something like 25,000 people come to hear him speak, and he miraculously fed them all. On another occasion, he had something like fifteen to 20,000 people come in one occasion to hear him speak. And again, he miraculously fed them all. He was well known. For the past two and a half years, he had gained quite a name for himself. Well, We're in the last about six months of his life here. He only lived or taught as an adult rabbi on this earth for about three years. And in about the last six months or so, he began making his way down to Jerusalem for the final time. He was going down there to celebrate Passover, but he knew what was going to happen to him when he when he got there. Now I want you to notice something. It says that he was on his way and he was leading the way and with him there was crowds following him and no doubt some of these crowds were of people who had heard him teach or saw him perform a miracle and they were following him. They wanted to know more. Probably most of them were pilgrims themselves who were heading down to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover as well. And so he was on sort of a main road and there were crowds of people kind of traveling along with him and there he was marching on down with his band of disciples and these crowds of people. And it says here that the disciples were astonished, but that those who followed were afraid. This is audience participation day, like we did last week. I'm gonna ask some questions. I'd love to get your responses. Why do you think some were afraid? It's a total guess. It's okay if you guess. Yes. No one had ever been as bold as Jesus. They hadn't seen somebody as bold as him, and that was intimidating. Yes. They knew he knew they really were. He he had this ability to kind of see through people, and maybe they they kind of felt that. You know, again, this side is always much more spiritual. I've been noticing that than this side. It's very strange. Anyone want to take a, a stab at it? Yes. Sometimes when you have powerful, it can be scary. Sometimes when you're around an important person, a powerful person, it can be intimidating. Yes. Fear of the unknown. Fear of the unknown. Those are all great answers. Yes. also, this was already predicted in the Old Testament, and so to watch it play out could be scary. Some of the people might have been aware of some of the prophecies, and they may have been connecting the dots and realizing, oh, this is pretty cool. Yeah. They knew they were going. So there were some that probably knew what was coming. I mean, certainly Jesus told them directly at different times. And and again, here, they kind of had a sense that something was going to happen in Jerusalem. Let me give you a little background that might help you a little bit. The city of Jerusalem is an old city. It goes back some 6,000 years or more. It was originally uh, a Jebusite stronghold. There's a group of people called the Jebusites. They they basically defeated whoever the natives were before them. They made it their stronghold about 1,000 BC or so. King David invaded. He took over Jerusalem and and made the city the capital of the Israelite nation when he was forming the nation. They built the the temple to to, to God there, the permanent temple at Jerusalem. About mm, 500 years, a little bit less or so later, the Babylonians invaded, destroyed the city, destroyed the temple. About 70 years later, it was rebuilt. Then it was conquered by the Persians, and then the Greeks. And then in 64 BC, Pompey, the Roman uh, uh, emperor uh, uh, general, invaded, def- uh, conquered the city, uh, destroyed it, and turned it in, and handed it over to uh, Roman, uh, the, put it under Roman control. And then he appointed a guy named Herod the Great. As king of the area. Now, Herod the Great was a great builder. That's why they called him the great. He wasn't a great guy, but he was a great builder. And he rebuilt the city, the temple, made it an amazing place. It was a metropolis with an amazing temple. We'll do another study on that later. It was an incredible place in the first century at the time of Jesus. Very busy, very bustling. And and during the holidays like Passover, it might, the population of the city might swell up into a million people. At least four or five times its normal size. Now, these political forces weren't the only thing that influenced the city of Jerusalem. There were also internal influences within the city. Within the Jewish faith itself, there were these different factions, these different sects. One of them was called the Sadducees. And if you might remember, they're sad, you see, because they don't believe in an afterlife. But they were more political than they were religious. They wanted to buddy up with the Romans, so they were always kind of lobbying that way. And And they were quite powerful even though they were small. Then there was the Pharisees. Anybody that reads the Bible at some point knows who the Pharisees are. Very righteous people, very uh, austere people, very committed to upholding the Ten Commandments and the Law of Moses. And, and they were the largest influencers at the time of Jesus. They had the most influence over the population and what went on in the city. There were also the Essenes. The Essenes were like the ancient world's version of the Amish. They were separatists. They didn't, they didn't get involved. They just kind of looked at it as all one big mess, and one day it was all going to be destroyed. So they kind of withdrew and formed their own little communities on the outskirts of the city. Then there was a group called the Zealots. The Zealots were radical, uh, 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 radicalized Jews who believed in the violent retaking of the city. They wanted to kill the Romans and retake the whole promised land. They carried knives. And, and when you weren't looking, if you were a Roman soldier, you might get hauled into a dark alley and stabbed by them. And then there were the teachers of the law and the scribes, kind of the same group of people. They were like the Bible scholars. They were the teachers. And they, they helped mediate disputes that came up with, according to the Jewish law, things like that. They were kind of like lawyers and professors, that kind of group. Well, all of these groups, had influence in one way or another into the city of Jerusalem. There were all these different tensions between these groups. And here's the kicker. As I said, Jesus had traversed all over the land of Palestine in the past two and a half years. A couple times went down to Jerusalem. Most of the time he spent up zigzagging all above that red arrow on the map. And at some point or another, he literally offended every one of those groups. And so here he is on his way to Jerusalem, leading the charge into the belly of the beast. There were people in that city that wanted him dead. And so the pilgrims cruising along might be like, oh, Jesus is with us, darn it. They want him dead over there. How'd we get in? We got on at the wrong time, honey. I told you we should have left an hour before. Now we're caught up into this. They're going to think we're with him. It was a pretty ominous, intimidating, intense feeling as they were journeying into the city. It's no wonder that Jesus starts to explain to them what's going to happen. This is one of the most detailed accounts of, his, of a prophecy that he gave about his death in all of Scripture. He goes into some extreme detail here. Hey, by the way, guys, I know, you, you know some of you think this is great, and others, I, I get why you're afraid. Let me just tell you the truth. They're going to they're arrest me, and then they're going to torture me, and then they're going to kill me. I ain't coming out of there alive. You know, Jesus... Walked a very hard road. It was not rainbows and lollipops everywhere he went. There were trials, there were tribulations, there were threats, there were enemies, there were people who wanted him dead, and the people that were following him, too. He walked a very hard road. Now, if our Lord, who we profess as our Lord and Savior and our King, our Teacher, our Master, if He walked a hard road, what do you think your road might look like at some point? The truth is, even though we live in such a great time as this, And even though we are protected by great laws and we're in a great country, the vast majority of Christians around the world are heavily persecuted. It's a hard road. Who knows what the future will hold for you and I. I believe Jesus' way was the best way, but I will tell you it's not the easiest way. We'll read on. Verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You do not know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. (laughs) Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with with, with the baptism I'm baptized with, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. So I don't know if you're following the story here, but this seems like an unusual thing to ask in the middle of Jesus predicting his own torturous, violent death. What do you think would possess them? And by the way, if you read one of the other gospels, it really was their mom that started this. You know, mom got involved. Hey, Jesus, my sons, they, you know, can you do something? Hey, James and John, come over here. What do you think would possess them to ask a question like that in the midst of the scenario that we just Painted. Yes, uh, I think it, uh, they were Jesus called the sons of thunder because they, uh, when the town rejected him, they had asked him uh, to call down fire upon that town and wiped it out. So they obviously had very zealous personalities. they were really on fire for God. Very zealous people, maybe kind of people that would jump before they would, they, before they would look kind of people, right? And uh, maybe it was just that. What else? Yeah. Well, if he's going to die, it's the last chance all, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. I guess if you know his time is near, you might as well get all you can now, right? What else? Um, yeah. I, I, maybe I feel like they were completely comprehending, and just the power of Jesus, in their mind was, we're going to win. Whatever this is, and they're just, they weren't really listening to what was going on. You know, Lewis, I, I appreciate you saying that. Look at verse 38. You don't know what you're asking. What prompted them? Ignorance. Ignorance prompted them to say what they said, to ask what they asked. And I love what Lewis just said. Think about it for a minute, guys. Put yourself in their shoes. It's easy to kind of make fun and tease them, and I do. You know, it's unbelievable to me that they would do this. But think about it. For two and a half years, they were with him. They saw him take on the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, and, and, and win. They saw him put the teachers of the law, the scribes in their place. They saw him raise uh, sick people from their sick beds, real sick people, not fake sick people. They saw him heal people with withered limbs where they regrew and they became nice and and muscular, like one of yours is. And 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 you know they saw these things. They they they, they saw a guy lowered on a mat, probably in Peter's living room, through the ceiling, who was paralyzed. And Jesus said, "Get up!" And he got up. They saw him feed. 20,000 people, 25,000 people with a few breads of, loaves of bread and some fish. Peter walked on water. I think we can forgive them a little bit. I mean, they, they I think they were really that ignorant. They, they just couldn't comprehend that anything bad was going to happen to Jesus, even when he told them what was going to happen. I don't think they could put, They just couldn't put that together. And let's add one other thing to this just to help you understand their mindset. At this time in Israel, it was a common teaching among the people, among the teachers of the law, the scribes, that that the Messiah, who they believed Jesus was, would be a warrior. That he would be like a warrior king. It was 150 years, just 150 years before this, when the Maccabees rose up against Antiochus Epiphanes, a, a bad guy to the Jewish people in their history, and, and with, all, with all odds against them, they defeated him and retook the city and the temple and made it for a short time a Jewish, uh, you know, a Jewish uh, returned it to Jewish hands for a short time. So in their psyche, they think about the heroes of the faith: Moses, Gideon, David. They were warriors and they were heroes and they were rescuers. They were messiahs and so. So you kind of you think that maybe that was in there, that they, they had this assumption about him. And so even though he plainly told them what to expect, it just, it just didn't make sense. That can't happen. I, I walked on water. There was a lot of, Overconfidence maybe? What's surprising to me in this whole story And I want you to pause and just really join me on this one Is not that they were out of touch That they were kind of self-deceived or ignorant Or whatever the case may be It was that how Jesus responded to them It says that uh, He said, you don't know what you're asking Can you drink the cup? I'm baptized with in, in, in the baptism I'm baptized with We can And then he said You will What, what you notice here Is a lack of Rebuking It's it's He kind of plays Along with them Oh okay You want to sit On my right and left Okay well What do you think That might look like How do you think That might be for you What do you think Is going to happen to you Do you think You can handle it And of course There they are Yes we can We can handle it Okay All right, but it's totally devoid of what I would expect it to be a rebuke. Aren't you guys listening to me? Don't you pay attention? I mean, it was just a a little bit before this that Jesus rebuked Peter for something he had done boneheaded along the way. Yet here he is, and he's not rebuking. He's, He's going along with it. Why do you think he didn't rebuke him? Yeah? Spoken by the woman married to the military guy. (laughs) He didn't mind it. Maybe you're right. Maybe he was like, yeah, that's good for you, James and John. I like a little fire in the belly. Anyone else? Yeah? I don't think, well, he knew that they could not handle her review. Peter's character, he called him a rock. They could not. with everything coming up, it wouldn't be good for their faith. I love having this kind of a conversation. Alex was saying that maybe they couldn't handle it. Peter could. He was nicknamed the Rock. Maybe their personalities couldn't take it. But you know what I love about what we're doing here? We're thinking about it. You know, we're making it real. Yeah? Um, I think he saw them what they were going to be, not what they were at that moment. Because they were going to actually die Well, James was going to die for him to be in prison. So... He said, actually, yes, you are this. So we already saw the end. And if they're if we don't always know that people are gonna be, we look at them they are now and we get upset with them rather than seeing their potential. Spoken like a true prophet. She has heard this message before, by the way. <laughs> but uh Yeah, I, I you know it, it, it the truth is he did know what was going to happen to them. They were gonna drink the cup, they were gonna get baptized by with the baptism, meaning the 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 suffering that he was going to be inflicted with. That is absolutely true. It's literally just a handful of years in the future where James, the first of the apostles to be martyred, was going to get beheaded. His brother John lived, outlasted all the other apostles. Can you imagine that? It's your brother. He dies the first and you die the last. And John did not have a rosy life. He lived all the way, some believe, into the about the 90s AD and He was exiled on the island of Patmos He had had his share of persecution Some traditions say that he was actually They tried to kill him, they boiled him in oil And he survived And then he lived in exile on the island of Patmos You know, maybe Jesus knew Well, certainly he knew That was in their future Maybe the the rebuke wasn't necessary Because he knew what was going to happen to them Either way, I don't know you know the, the real answer we'll have to ask when we get there, but but I appreciate the gentleness. It surprises me. He was gentle. His his road was hard, but his way was gentle. Verse 41, when the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who regard as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. So the other ten apostles hear about James and John and their mother did. And, uh, they're indignant. And I'd like to tell you that they were indignant because they were so spiritual and mature. But the truth is, they were just as immature. They were upset at James and John. How could these guys do that? Who do they think they are? How dare them? How many people have ever heard the phrase, people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones? you heard that? What does it mean? Yeah. It's kind of the biblical equivalent of not like don't take the speck out of your brother's eye without first taking the flank out of your own eye. In other words, you you know, so you take if you have the same thing going on, don't be grown stuff. Thank you, Jen. Yes, it's don't be a hypocrite. Don't go around blaming other people and pointing out their flaws and faults because the truth is, we are all full of flaws and faults. We all fail again and again. And who do we think we are to put ourselves on a pedestal and look down at someone else and be critical and judge them because we don't like the way they do things? I know what you're thinking. Yeah, but the Bible says a spiritual man or a mature man, no, a godly man makes judgments about all things. And Jesus judged. Well, the the key words there are godly and Jesus. I don't think anyone in here, myself included, is Jesus. So I don't think we have the right to be judgmental towards anyone else. And Truth be told, we try to be godly, but man, we have a lot of flaws, don't we? And and when we start getting into the whole comparing ourselves to each other and not to Jesus, we end up in a bad place. We end up in that judgmental, critical, arrogant, self-righteous place where we look down our nose at other people and we judge them and what they're doing and we think we wouldn't do it that way and so we put ourselves on a pedestal. Thank God that Jesus interrupts them. Come here, guys. Huddle up. Don't act like everyone else. Don't be like the Gentiles and the rulers of the Gentiles who lord over each other. Don't look down your nose at other people. Don't think you're any better than the next guy. It's hypocritical to hold others to a standard that we really can't live up to ourselves. So here's a thought. Let's stop comparing ourselves to each other, and let's start comparing ourselves to Jesus. You just can't go wrong when you compare yourself to Jesus. Jesus walked the hard road, his way was gentle, and his path was paved with humility. So, I'm going to get open here. It's uncomfortable. But if if I only knew how many times God was gentle with me when I didn't deserve it, if I only knew how many times God was merciful and gracious and didn't hold me to a standard that I couldn't live up to, I think... It'd be easier to appreciate other people. It'd be easier to not be so judgmental and condescending. I am a flawed person. I sin a lot, pretty much all the time. I try better than some, worse than others, but I'm trying. And thank God that He doesn't judge me like that. Thank God He doesn't treat me like we treat each other. A few years ago, and this is as a Christian, by the way, and as a minister. And this is embarrassing to share. A friend of mine in the church asked for some help. He wanted to learn how to drive a stick. And so I said, "Okay." Man, I regret that I said okay. <laughs> we got in the car, and I don't know what happened, but like the ghost of my dad and possessed me. And I was so unloving. I was so unkind. I berated him I yelled at him. I lost my temper. He was having a hard time getting the coordination down between the clutch and the stick shift. And, and I, I just lost it for like 10 minutes. And I just yelled at him like, what's your problem? Why can't you figure this out? And on and on and on. And I'm the minister. I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed of how I acted. It went on for probably 10, 15 minutes. And then I, I finally was like, I gotta get, I can't stop. I couldn't stop myself. I got out of the car. I'm like, and then I started apologizing as much as I could. And, and I began to apologize to him repeatedly for weeks every time I saw him. And then that turned into months. And I think it went on for about a year. And, and, and he, he at some point was like, stop apologizing. I forgive you. Don't worry about it. I understand. And I couldn't stop apologizing. Then he got mad at me because I kept apologizing. <laughs> And so I finally had to stop apologizing, but to this day, I tear up. To this day, I want to apologize to him. It takes everything in my power when I see him to not apologize to him out of respect to him. Thank God he didn't treat me as I deserved. Thank God he was humble. Thank God he was gentle. I've been working with the Shoreline Church for, I don't know, a year and a half, something like that. And I'm going to be very honest. There's a lot of judgmentalness in this fellowship. Don't think, I don't know. Don't think other people don't know. And don't think that God doesn't know. It is so easy to tear each other down. It's so easy to find fault because our needs aren't being met the way we think they should be met. I'm going to apologize to you right now because I owe you an apology. I overpromised. I really did. I wanted to get involved, I was asked to come down and help, it took about a year, we got involved, we had some great meetings, some great things happened, we got a plan into motion, it felt great, and things were going, and I was heavily involved, and then earlier this year, I realized that See Me Church was being completely neglected, and I said, man, I got to get involved in See Me now, and so I withdrew a little bit, too much, and I, I mean that, I withdrew too much, and I got back up and see me and then schedule got out of control and thing, one thing after another and next thing you know, I'm like, man, I haven't been to Shoreline in a while. I need to get down there. I'm sorry. I really, really am sorry that I failed you, that I let you down, that I didn't, I didn't spend more time here. I didn't stay as connected as I meant to. We had time with different people. We had connections with different people but I, I needed to be more present. As much as I have bandwidth for, I needed to be more present, and I'm sorry. So I'm committed to correcting that, to uh, writing that wrong, to being more present. But I'm gonna, I realize I need to manage expectations here. I can't over-promise again. And so let me, let me say this, and I want you to hear me. Because this will... Change your life. And I mean this. If you let this sink in, it will change your life. I'm going to pour out my cup as much as I can, but I can't fill yours. Jesus is going to have to do that for you. You know, I've had people mistreat me over the years. I've had people do wrong by me and I've been angry and bitter and I've gotten critical and I've made the same kind of mistakes, but I'm always reminded of that phrase that they couldn't fill my cup even if they tried. Even if they were perfect, it wouldn't fill my cup because that's only reserved for Jesus to do. And if you can adopt that same mentality with me and with your brothers and sisters in the church, if you can look at each other and not try to expect them to be everything you need them to be, but just appreciate that they pour out what they have, it will change your life because you will allow Jesus to fill your cup and you won't need to be critical or, 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 or condescending or judgmental toward your brother or sister and then you can just extend love to them. He says... Whoever wants to be first must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. My request for you as we wrap up here. Is that if there's anybody you've been harboring Any kind of ill will towards Any kind of criticalness Any kind of judgment If you've been holding any kind of grudge Because they haven't met your need To please confess your sin to someone I wouldn't say go to them I would say confess it to someone else And then change with them Because it's kind of awkward if I go up to Gavin And I say, hey Gavin, listen I just want you to know I forgive you for not meeting my needs (laughs) That's just kind of more of the same You follow me? kind of more of the same but if I go to my wife and I say man I've been irritated with Gavin he's really been letting me down and I've been holding a grudge and I want to get that off my chest honey would you pray with me and we pray it out well then I just go to Gavin and I love Gavin and I appreciate Gavin and I'm grateful for what Gavin does do for me and what he can give me and what I can give him in return and what is lacking Jesus makes it up Amen? amen would you be willing to do that today Would you be willing to find that person and have that talk? Man, this was the one time Jesus stopped this entire procession on the road. This was a big deal. When he saw them turn on each other, he stopped the show. Come here. This ain't going on any longer. This is bad. Last thing, and we'll be done. The last verse he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but the servant to give his life as a ransom for many. That word ransom in the Greek, sorry, I'm old, is "lytron," And it literally means the price of release. In other words, it was the money paid to free a slave. You know what the apostles took a long time to figure out, and maybe we need to figure it out too, is that Jesus didn't come to take captives. He wasn't a warrior trying to take people and make them his slaves. And if that's what you think Christianity is, man, you need, to, you need a whole new thinking. What he came to do was to give his life, to, to use his life as the ransom, to give up himself, to pay our price so that we could be free. Free. Free from the judging and the criticalness and the condescending, and the pride, and the arrogance, and the lording over, free. I hope today you figured out that Jesus isn't what he always seems to be. Like that guy who took that frog and at some point realized, well, this frog ain't what I thought it was. (laughs) Jesus is something so much better, so much greater, so much more. I'm gonna close this out and I'd like to do something different. I'd like us to go arm in arm. Let's get everybody in tight. Let's put our arms around each other. Let's bridge the aisle. Let's close out in prayer and let's leave here becoming more like Jesus than we were when we came in. Let me getting here, okay, I'll do it the weird way with Karen. (laughs) Father, thank you so very much for bringing us